Hey everyone, we're back with the Tech Policy Grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Tech law and policy folks love their conferences. And I've been really lucky to have the opportunity to attend quite a few of them all around North America in the past few months. Conferences are an incredible way to meet people doing interesting work, people who have fascinating stories, and a good way to keep up to date on what's what in the field. I also personally love seeing all my fellow Foundry fellows at so many of these conferences and meeting new people too. So for today's episode, we're bringing you to three conferences that have taken place in the past month. The ICANN 76 meeting in Cancun, Mexico, the Women in Cybersecurity Conference in Denver, Colorado, and the Air National Association of Privacy Professionals Global Privacy Summit in Washington, D.C. I hung out with some Foundry folks who you might have heard on the show before throughout these conferences. Joe Catapano, Mary Bagdasarian, Lama Muhammad, in real life, which was a ton of fun, but also met some incredible folks for the first time or in person for the first time after knowing each other for a while. And that's mostly who we chatted with in this episode. First up, we head to the ICANN 76 Community Forum in Cancun. ICANN stands for the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, and is the organization that uses the multi-stakeholder policy-making model to make decisions about the domain name system. I was lucky to attend as an ICANN fellow, learned a ton, and met some incredible people, including Sinjinaya Cantayeje, a Brazilian data privacy attorney from Sao Paulo. Hey everyone, I'm here with Sinjinaya Cantanieje at the ICANN 76 Community Forum in Cancun, Mexico. Hey, Cindy. Hello, Rima. Very good to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. So maybe to start us off, if you just want to give a quick sense of uh, your background and sort of what brought you to ICANN. Sure. I'm Sinjinaya Cantanieji. I'm a privacy lawyer from Brazil. And I'm, as a tech fellow, also doing the ICANN Fellow program. Amazing. So what is the ICANN Fellow program, which is how we met, it's, um, how we're, we're here together. But could you just dig into sort of what it is, how it works? So the program selects internet leaders from all of the world to attend the ICANN meetings. And the ICANN meetings are primarily focusing on DNS issues. But we have people from different backgrounds and different countries that are able to contribute in the policy process, but also in the multi-stakeholder discussions. Sweet. And what's your experience at ICANN been thus far? I started in internet governance in the IGF forum, so I have been working within this field for over six years now. I was a mentor for the Brazilian fellowship in IGF, so I have a lot of experience in different fields of internet, privacy, and children protection. But I wanted to explore the the ICANN environment, especially because they are more focused on technology issues within the DNS, and they have a model that represents a lot of people. For example, in the GET committee, 
who is very active on the discussions. So I'm in the fellowship program uh, since 2020 when I was selected as an action and I have been following the meetings in the online format for a long time now. Very cool. So here at the ICANN 76 Community Forum, what are some of the conversations you've been hearing or uh, what's been sort of your takeaways from it so far? Sure. I'm really interested in the intersection within human rights and DNS. So I have been in some meetings with the NECUC, but also exploring in the IP constituents who is dealing specifically with DNS. So I have been trying to explore different environments. For example, in the GAC meetings, I have been in contact with the who is discussion and how people are developing policies around these issues. So you just used a ton of acronyms, which we love. <laughs> so maybe could you break some of those down? What is NCUC? What do they do? Uh, what's the GAC? What's the who is process, etc.? Very good. Thank you for this reminder. <laughs> so the NCUC is the non-commercial users constituents, and they are very engaged uh, in social policies around Internet. So they are engaged in uh, discussions of human rights, but also discussions in Internet policies and IP. And we have in the GAC uh, the Governmental Advisory Committee, and there we have, a, I think, about 181 countries represented there. So they are taking part in the forum and the discussions within the DNS issues, who is the domain name system. So this is a, a sort of a background on it. That's super helpful. And what are you sort of excited about with the future of ICANN and sort of DNS policy and whatnot going forward? Sure. Uh, as I come from Brazil in a vulnerable community in the Northeast, I'm really interested in bringing more people to enhance their representation, specifically when you talk about groups as indigenous people and Colombos, because they are very active in other spaces related to the multi-stakeholder discussions. For example, within the climate change, we have a broader representation. So I think it's very important to bring this diversity within the ICON ecosystem in the internet governance, and that's what I'm committed to doing back in Brazil. That's amazing. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of conversations just in the public forum, which we were just in. Uh, someone sort of brought up that question of climate action, both within, you know, ICANN uh, internal policy and sort of outward facing policy as well. So I'm definitely curious to see how that'll all go. Well, thank you so much for being here, Cindy. And I'm so glad that we got to meet at ICANN. And if you're listening and you're interested in learning more, then we'll drop a link in the show notes. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Next up, I chat with Lynn Dome, the executive director of WESIS, and Anna Lane Fiesta. Thank you so much, Lynn, for joining us. So just to start off... The WESIS conference happened a couple weeks back now, uh, and I am such a huge fan of WESIS, of you, and everything that you do. Um, so maybe for folks listening, could you give sort of an overview of what WESIS is and how you sort of came to it? Sure. They, they could be a very long answer, Remo, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're here for it. <laughs> Uh, so the WESIS, we're women in cybersecurity. So we often go by our acronym, W-I-C-Y-S, and we pronounce it WESIS, like we sisters, because as you know, we're a global cyber sisterhood. So 
Our mission is to recruit, retain, and advance women in cybersecurity, and we do so by creating opportunities. So we have over 7,500 members with representation in over 70 countries. And then in addition to that, we have 58 professional affiliates, your professional affiliate actually being one of them. And they're around... um, Uh, different regions throughout Africa, Australia, Canada, France, India, Pakistan, Norway, Israel, the UK, and throughout the United States. And then we have corporate affiliates. So we sis MITRE and we sis Lockheed Martin. And then in addition to that, we have specialty affiliates. So we have our artificial intelligence, BSO, critical infrastructure, data privacy, cybersecurity law, cloud security, uh, LGBTQ plus pride, neurodiversity, military, Colors of Inclusion, Latinas in Cybersecurity, and we just recently launched our WESIS DEF affiliate. And then in addition to all of that, we have over 215 right now, I believe, student chapters. And they're all around the world with Microsoft Philanthropies funding a global student chapter initiative. So what we do is we create opportunities. What I just mentioned, that was our community, and that's comprised of women, men, allies, and advocates that are all concerned about the critical workforce shortage. And they know that WESIS is one piece of a solution uh, filling that workforce void that we have right now. But by creating opportunities, we create accessibility and we align it with resources and our partners and create inclusive spaces for all of those that might be interested in cybersecurity or might be pursuing their cybersecurity education and advancing in their careers to have a place where they belong and interest. And so we have many different skill development training programs. We have our mentor-mentee program, which we just closed enrollment for for 2023. It's a nine-month program where we designed and developed a curriculum to upskill and up-level women no matter where they're at in their careers to prepare them for their next level of advancement. We just ended that enrollment with over 1,600 individuals registering for that program. We have a speakers bureau so that our members can be what others can see, and that's the cybersecurity professionals that they are. We have media opportunities or job boards so that recruitment can happen year-round. We have our, our conference, which is the how we started back in 2014, and that's still a really important initiative of ours. And I'm sure we'll talk about the conference in just a second. Um, but we have apprenticeship programs, internship programs, so many different opportunities um, that are funded by Google, Meta, Bloomberg, Credit Newmark Philanthropies, ISC Squared, Sands Institute, Fortinet, Target, AWS, and so many others. Cisco, they're all contributors to incredible, fantastic uh, programming efforts that we offer for that year-round engagement. That's so great to hear. Uh, I mean, Weezus has so much going on. It's crazy to me that uh, y'all only started up in 2014, uh, less than 10 years ago, and there's already been such a scaling of the different opportunities that are available. So I would love to dig in a little bit more on what the conference is and sort of the opportunity that it presents to folks who are interested in careers in cybersecurity. Could you talk a bit about that? Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. So you're right. We started in 2014 as a conference initially. 
And the reason why was that our founder, Dr. Amberine Siraj, who was at Tennessee Tech University at that time, she reached out to NSF to receive some seed funding for the first ever Women in Cybersecurity Conference. The reason why is because many years earlier, when she was a student and studying and loving what she was learning, she was one of very few other, if any other, females in the classroom. Well, you fast forward to that 2012-2013 timeframe, and now she's a PhD, a professor teaching cybersecurity, and she's still one of few, very few other women in the classroom. So the, the needle didn't move at all for her and what she was recognizing. So around that same time came the statistic that women represented 11% of the cybersecurity workforce. Well, she wasn't seeing it in any of her circles of industry, academia, and government. So her initial ask of, for NSF was essentially, if this data is saying that women in cybersecurity exist, then let's bring them together for a technical conference, a cybersecurity conference, so we could all collaborate, connect, network, and talk about cybersecurity together. And so NSF said, great, they awarded her $70,000, anticipating that was enough money for her to engage 250 women. Well, Dr. Siraj, being the trailblazing woman that she is, she was able to take that funding and stretch it and engage 900 women. So 350 women attended in 2014, 550 women attended in 2015, and then at that point, the NSF funding was was dry. And so through a lot of hard work, she continued to connect with the right communities and companies and industries to continue to fund and grow the conference. And it did, it grew, it grew from that 550 in 2015 to 800 to 900. And, and then when it was here in Chicago in 2018, there was 1100 attendees. And that's when uh, the WESIS organization announced it was going into a nonprofit, a 501c3, in order to continue to scale, but to sustain the growth and the needs and the demands that uh, of the needs for women in cybersecurity. So you fast forward to the 2023 conference. We had 2,100 attendees, 1,900 of those were uh, regular attendees, 200 were recruiters that came to the conference, and we reached full capacity in less than a half hour of opening up registration. So regardless of gender, we're the only cybersecurity conference that ensures equal representation of aspiring and underrepresented professionals and industry professionals. So how we do that is for every regular registrant, we issue out a scholarship. So we always ensure that equal representation. Then on top of that, we ensure comparable representation of industry, academia, and government. So it's this just this very unique energy and vibe that everyone gets from the knowledge sharing and the information brought to the conference itself and the industries or, or academia or government sectors that they represent when they're there. So in the past few years, we've received over $8 million in funding for the conference and the other initiatives, and we have paid it forward with $6 million for over 4,000 individuals to receive scholarships. So we're a nonprofit that essentially, you know, brings in um, opportunities and pays it forward for those that are interested. So those scholarships are given out to women that might even be interested in cybersecurity. We know that it takes coming to a conference like WESIS to be able to be ignite your passion, be empowered to learn and, and be a part of the space where everyone knows this is where they belong and they could move through their cybersecurity career collectively because of it. Yeah, I 
I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's such an incredible opportunity, and I've been very lucky to take advantage of the WESIS student scholarship um, for three, I think three years now, um, since the, the conference came back to in person uh, after the pandemic. And it's always so much fun. I always meet the coolest people. Um, I definitely have friends uh, that I've made through WESIS conferences who, uh, who I love to hang out with uh, when whenever I'm in their towns all around the, the U.S. or even around the world. So uh, I do love that sort of opportunity to connect with folks and also learn so much. And something that I want to talk a little bit about for our listeners who are largely tech law and policy uh, professionals or aspiring professionals is sort of the conversations that you were hearing or uh, engaging in at WESIS 2023 this year, because uh, I've, you know, like I said, gone to the WESIS conference for a few years now, uh, but have noticed that this year there was a lot more conversation about the policy implications of cyber cybersecurity as compared to solely the technical sphere. So uh, did you get that? sense and sort of what was your your big takeaway um, from the WESIS conference, maybe both substantively and also on that more connection front of, uh, of the different stories that you heard throughout the conference? What we're seeing from my side is we're seeing a lot more of allies really rising into the space to bring these conversations even higher um, and bringing more involved with it. And so from the tech law and policy side, from our community, we're just seeing more of a demand of connections within the community itself. So I wasn't involved in the conversations regarding the tech law policy itself, but I was involved in a lot of the community wanting to come together to be able to connect and collaborate with others to brainstorm more ideas and the actual demand and need for that collective space of knowledge sharing to happen. So, you, you know, the, the WESIS affiliate that focuses its attention around this, this niche area is really important to gather and bring that community together to have that, that knowledge sharing and that shared space of understanding of what is on the forefront and how can we continue to work together on just staying ahead of the game and all the demands that's needed from, from the policy side. Um, yeah, there was just, there was a lot at the conference, a lot of conversations around um, senior leaders really leveraging their, their knowledge, either within a mentoring program, but also being part of the leaders within WESIS to bring more awareness and also to create more opportunities for women advancing in their careers. So what we've known throughout the years is that we could continue to recruit women all we want in cybersecurity, but can we retain and what does advancement look like? So a lot of the conversations at the conference really stemmed from that, from that retention piece and advancement opportunities. There was also some studies that 
were focused on, and one of them was, I'm sure you're well aware of it, was the Gartner study that predicted by 2025 that 50% of cybersecurity leaders, they predict, will be changing jobs. And 25% of that 50% ratio they're predicting is going to leave cybersecurity altogether. So there are some areas that really need some specific focus and um, creating more opportunities. Something that I heard um, while at the conference from uh, Camille Stewart, who is such a cool person um, and a former Foundry Fellow, uh, she you know, now at the office of the National Cyber Director is working on some of these aspects of uh, retention and sort of like workforce and education, uh, innovative strategies within the cybersecurity field. And the interdisciplinariness that cybersecurity sort of requires um, interdisciplinary skill sets is something that really stood out to me. And so I think your point really underscores that of how important it is to stay in the field and learn from different perspectives uh, in order to advance through it to that decision-making sort of phase, uh, which involves a lot of policy conversations inherently. So yeah, I think it's such a great opportunity, such a great place to learn from others who have, uh, you know, who come from different disciplines, who come from different universities and different ways of learning about cyber. I'm very thankful to you and and all you do for the conference. And uh, before we hop off, is there anything that you are particularly excited about for uh, WESIS going forward? Oh, well, the most exciting thing in my world right now for WESIS is that we're going to be launching a a new member portal. And so that will take quite some time. But once it's launched, we're going to have a WESIS app. We're going to have all sorts of new ways of engagement, new ways of job posts to be able to be pushed out to our our WESIS members and more way to make these connections, Rima, like with your affiliate, more ways for folks to get awareness of the other opportunities of the communities and the cohorts available to them and be a part of the conversation. So the conversations are just going to be more rich and more timely and more accessible. Well, I cannot wait. And thank you so much for chatting. Thanks, Rima, for having me. Hey, Anna, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Rima. This is awesome, and I'm super excited to chat with you today. Amazing. So do you want to just tell the nice folks listening who you are and what you do? Sure. So I work for a software company called Zendesk. I'm a security compliance enablement team member, and I lead a team of three people globally, nine people indirectly, and we do everything from security addendum uh, contract negotiations to due diligence for customers and requests for information. And we also help gap assess laws. Sweet. And how did you learn about WESIS? Uh, So when I first started working in security back in, oh gosh, 2018, I did not know anyone. I did not know anything and I wanted to learn. So I was trying to find a community and a support group to help me figure out what steps to take. Uh, So really it was Googling. And then I found this amazing community of people who have varied interests. So 
Amazing. And this is your first Wieses conference? It is, in person. I did do a virtual one, but uh, very different. The in-person conference has been absolutely amazing. So... Amazing. So do you want to give us your recap of the conference or how it's been, what you've learned, your like high level takeaways? Oh, how long do I have? Um, (laughs) As long as you want. (laughs) Oh dear. Uh, The conference has been great. The events very obviously curated. They have tons of different content for for people across industries. Um, So it's not just the typical hacker in the the hoodie behind a computer. Um, I've greatly enjoyed the conversations that have happened organically between between sessions and during networking, uh, both over meals and at the lobby bar. Um, so that has been truly great. The workshops were a lot of fun to go to. I think I met someone from every single three-letter agency at this <laughs> conference, uh, which is fantastic and slightly intimidating. Um, yeah, some of the sessions that really stood out, uh, I attended one and I took notes. Uh, so there was a session on AI and race, and uh, in particular with surveillance, so if that's security or surveillance, and that was such an engaging conversation where the presenter, uh, Fatu, who is a doctoral candidate, I believe, uh, just really got into the audience and started answering questions. So it was a really great engaging conversation. And then Alicia also had one on a, uh, PII and the privacy zombie that is PII. <laughs> and what is PII? Yeah, PII stands for Personally Identifiable Information or Personal Identifying Information or any other variation (laughs) of that that you want to use. And it is, the presentation was basically saying that that using that terminology can potentially do more harm than good because people assume it's just your name, your address, your um, uh, name, address, email, things like that. But if you combine data sets, you can still identify people. So... It was a really interesting conversation on how that can impact the creation of your apps, the creation of your code base, if you're only marking some things as sensitive and some things as not. Fascinating. And how do we know each other? (laughs) Do we know each other? Have we met? Do we? Are we strangers? (laughs) We're strangers that met at a lobby bar. No, that sounds weird. Uh, So we served together on the privacy law and policy affiliate that someone named Rima had the great idea to start um, because privacy and security are not the same. They overlap, but you're a law person, industry professional, and uh, I'm in security, but we do have overlapping uh, interests and our decisions in one realm impact the other so it's it's really great to have our affiliate where we talk about that overlap yeah and that was definitely a highlight of this conference for me was getting to share with folks what our affiliate is and what does um and so just being a part of this community makes my heart so full and there's so much going on um but i'm so glad that we got to chat today thank you so much anna Yeah, thank you. And we got to highlight our affiliate during one of the sessions, which was amazing. Hopefully we'll have more people joining us soon. And if not, I'm sure we can sneak a link into the podcast notes. (laughs) Into the show notes? You bet we will. (laughs) Thank you, Rima. Cheers. Next up, Lama Muhammad and I went to the Global Privacy Summit hosted by the Air National Association of Privacy Professionals in Washington, D.C., Lama chats with Leona Lewis, who's Senior Counsel of Privacy, Ethics, and Compliance at Thrasio, Salila Kanum Salahuddin, Attorney Advisor at the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, and Jacqueline Ahn, Senior Attorney of Data Privacy at IBM, and a former Foundry Fellow. 
Hi, we are recording live from the IAPP Global Privacy Summit. We are on day three. We just finished our morning panel on youth privacy perspective issues. And I'm here today with Leona Edith Lewis. And we're talking about um, AI and just her experience at the IAPP Summit. Hi, it's, glad, it's good to be here. I really have enjoyed the summit quite a bit. I, it, it, the crowd was huge and really enthusiastic. Um, the, the speakers were top-notch. They I mean, they were really the right people to talk to us. Um, we just heard from the general counsel of OpenAI, and I just don't think I could go be anywhere else to get this kind of information. Is there anything you learned this whole week that you didn't know or something that was really memorable that you're going to take back to you with with your work? Yeah, the fact that the California uh, Attorney General's office has been sending out a lot of letters (laughs) that I have never seen because they didn't get hit the news. You know, the, the settlement with Sephora... Uh, was a big deal, but there were a lot of actions out there that we didn't see. So, so that was good. That was very interesting information. I had, I really didn't know how big, how much, how much effort they were putting into it. Absolutely, I think with the media, we tend to see that people say that government don't really know what they're talking about when it comes to technology. But I think it's helpful that there are people doing the great work. And so, my last question is. There's a lot of stuff in the media that sort of shows some of the adverse effects of AI and technology, and it can seem a little jarring and daunting. Do you feel a little bit more optimistic since IAPP about the people and the the policies that are in place and what's to come for the future? Well, I think there's a lot of work to do because I don't think it's a choice. I think essentially the genie is out of the bottle, and now we have to figure out what to do. And so I don't think think the debate over whether we should go, we should work with AI or not is moot. <laughs> I think it's just, I, 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 and I honestly really enjoy with this um, group of people because they're all coming with, you know, the same kind of, if they're working in companies, the same kind of struggles about privacy and working with regulators and working with ethical issues with, with data. I don't normally in my work, workaday life have this many people um, talking about the same issue at the same time. That I totally agree. Well, thank you so much and stay tuned for this episode. It goes live next Thursday. Great. Thank you. Alright, so we are with our next interviewer. Um, please feel free to introduce yourself and where you work and what's your experience been like so far at the Global Privacy Summit? Um, yes, hello. I am Salila Saladin. I am an attorney with the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board with prior experience at Facebook and Senate Judiciary at DOJ. And this is my first time here at the IAPP. I've heard wonderful things about it, but I will say it's just been breathtaking the scale of this conference and how many people have been convened. We have senior leaders in international organizations and U.S. government. We have emerging professionals. We have civil society, private sector, government. And um, it was a bit overwhelming the first day. Um, and I wondered, you know, should we be segregating these communities? But I actually think the strength of the IAPP forum is uh, as a convening body in a way that is unlike any other place on earth. And I think if you're starting out in your career, it's a wonderful place to come because there are no barriers to entry here, Mm -hmm. which I think is really commendable that so many people at all levels of uh, expertise and experience are able to come together and learn from one another, I think is uh, hugely equalizing. And I've been really um, 
impressed with the care of so many uh, presentations and on cutting edge topics. And um, one thing that I'm taking away is just the evolution of the privacy discussion over the last decade. And that's been consolidated here really well. That's awesome. Um, I was asking a couple of my other uh, guest interviewers about sort of the optimism that they have. And there's a lot of news in the media cycle sort of discussing some of the more adverse effects of technology and it can be really jarring especially for people who aren't in the field do you feel hopeful about what's to come do you really feel like the community has sort of allowed you to feel optimistic about policy implications and what is something that's top of mind that you hope people are going to be able to tackle in the next year i think that the um closing keynote from FTC Commissioner Bedoya was really good talking about how existing legal frameworks and policy frameworks do apply to some of the evolution that we're seeing. So to the extent that uh, communities are, are deeply concerned about some of this evolution and think that there aren't frameworks in place that apply, um, I, I think that this forum has you know brought to light that there are things that the privacy community in particular has taken leadership on over the past several years and, and helped evolve that are instructive for us right now. Um, I was a little bit surprised to see how much of the discussion here was focused on AI. Um, it, it seemed like the sexy thing in the room and a lot of people <laughs> were running towards that um, as a topic. Um, I, I wonder if it's an over pivot because it is so much in the spotlight right now. Mm. But I think the main takeaway is that as much as conversations around AI are focused on the shiny thing at present, we do have frameworks in place that can help us, you know, tackle the challenges and also evolve them appropriately. And I think the conference has been really good at bringing out those discussions. Amazing. And to sort of conclude, the Internet Law and Policy Founder is a early career fellowship for those trying to get into the space and develop a platform. Do you have any advice for people looking to get into the privacy space? I think that there's just a wealth of information out there. And um, there, whether it's like infographics that you can read or white papers that you can read, I think just being very motivated in terms of Google searches, in terms of reaching out to people via LinkedIn or just direct emails or phone calls or, or social media to get connected. Um, there are people who want more people coming in who have that energy and focus. And I think because there's such an explosion now, uh, having some desire to specialize in what you're interested in rather than sort of take it all on because it is such a big field now and there are sub-specializations to focus on being motivated, but also having some sense of what you want to do. I think IAPP is a great way to get entry into some of these discussions that you wouldn't have um, entry into otherwise. Um, and just get started. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. All right. We are back live with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry at the IAPP Global Privacy Summit. And it's a small world, and we have several Foundry Fellows, new, current, and old, at the summit. And with us is Jacqueline from Class 2. Jacqueline, it's so nice for you to be on the show. Please tell us your general experience at um, IAPP. Has this been your first time, second time? What are your thoughts? Thank you, Lama. Um, it has been my first time surprisingly um i'm surprising myself um because you know i've been i've dabbled in privacy you know yeah. time to time um but it was really 
a um, really an interesting experience,、mm-hmm. and I think I was really surprised by how sort of broad industry, like a lot of different people from、mm-hmm. various industry, came by, and it really represented like. A broad swath of you know、um, types of industries, so that was really interesting because I think there was a time when policy was really for like geeky academics, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I think someone mentioned like when it used to be like eight hundred people right yeah, yeah, <laughs> per yeah, yeah.、Um, conference,、um, but yeah, so it just it just kind of it was really cool to see how big this landscape grew and how it's very pervasive, right? The issue of privacy, so. Absolutely,、mm-hmm. and in sort of thinking about what you've learned here today and your role, what is something that you're going to take away from this conference? If there's one thing that I could mention,、um, is or what, rather one big takeaway、um, is the fact that everything boils down to trust and relationships. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think that's like a simple enough answer、um, because you know I think. This is this field is rapidly growing, but at the end of the day, everyone's just trying to do the right thing. Yes, and operationalize, implement, and just navigate the space in a way where we won't harm the society eventually. But、mm-hmm. you know, and also, you know, the big thing is we need to be. I, I think there's definitely just ulti-、um, like a big focus on. How we could only do that by really, really sort of engendering conversations、um, in a way that's fair for everyone, and in a way that ultimately generates trust. So I, I love that. I think at the end, I think the one thing I like about this space is that. Everybody is coming to do the right thing,、yeah. and I think you bring the best of the lawyers and the best of technologists, because <laughs>、yeah. those individual professions tend to be quite uppy, up, uppity sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and it's、sure. nice to know that people are coming here for a greater cause.、Yeah. And so, with that in mind, you know the news cycle tends to report about some pretty scary things going on in tech, and it's easy to become sort of desensitized to all these scary issues. Do you feel optimistic about the future since coming here? Are you hopeful? And what are those aspirations, net feeling for the privacy profession? <laughs> I'm gonna have a very sort of、um, maybe maybe I don't I don't know if my answer is going to be satisfactory because、okay. <laughs> I'm gonna say <laughs> very loyally answer in some ways, but、yes. you know I, I hope. Both emotions, right? Right, right. It depends. It depends. Exactly. It depends on the context. <laughs>、um, but you know, I think, I think the just seeing people having conversation is hope enough for me at this moment in time that there is attention being、right. brought.、Um, you know, obviously, I, this is such a this is a challenging space. Like,、yeah. there are no easy answers. Yeah, so. Yeah. Yes, it's there is doom and gloom because this is a really, really hard subject.、Um, but you know, if I have to, if I could, like, if I have to be, but if I have to pull out something more optimistic,、um, it's kind of like we've humans went hand in hand with technology for forever, and this is we could think of this as another piece of technology that. You know, if we have, if we gain some control, if we have these conversations, we could use it for the good and use it for the bad. But as long as we have this conversation, I think it's we're in the right, we're going towards the right direction. 
<laughs> I love that. And with that, we conclude. Thank you so much, Jacqueline, for coming on the show. Good seeing you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.